Welcome to Hall Talk. Life is filled with unexpected moments. Thank you for joining Jared Hall, a specialist in being a generalist, as he shares biblical insights and leadership lessons while curating stories. And now your host, Jared Hall. Thank you so much for joining us. This week, we're going to be diving into our Bible Q&A. And so it's on the second weeks that we want to take a look at questions that you may have and that others have related to the Bible. One of the things that we know to be true is that in most churches, in most congregations, January marks the start of a time to try to take on a Bible reading program. And so for a lot of people, they're going to try and read through the Bible in the course of 2021. And I think that's awesome. That's amazing. Now, inevitably, what happens is, is that when you read through the Bible in its entirety, there's going to be points in time at which you're going to have questions. Something's going to strike you, whether you're seeing it for the first time or just simply uh, noticing it for the first time, even though you may have read it before. And so I want to encourage you, if you have questions while reading the Bible in 2021, write them down and then shoot them to me. I'd be more than happy to take a crack at answering them. I think it's so important that we take the time to study and to answer the questions we have in Scripture. Oftentimes, doubt can arise when questions remained unaddressed. And doubts eventually can become dangerous, a pitfall to our faith. And so, I want to do my best in serving you and helping answer your Bible questions whether you have a random question or you have questions that come up in your Bible reading program for this year. And so with no further ado, let's get into this week's question. This week's question is not quite from the text, but more of a question about the text. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever had a conversation like this, or maybe you've wondered this yourself, but if you've looked into the Bible, what we believe as evangelicals is that the original manuscripts or the autographs are inspired by God and that the copies may have some errors, but we have so many copies that we can have confidence in what the original said. And so therefore, the problem then remains is that we don't have any of the autographs. We only have copies. And so people will accuse the Bible of being a document that's changed and changed significantly from its original transmission, its original writing, to today. It's been a common accusation against the Bible for the last 200 to 300 years, pretty much since the Enlightenment has happened. And so the question basically goes like this. How can I trust the Bible if we don't have the original autograph? Well, there's lots of books that have been written on this topic. One of my uh, favorites that I think does an excellent job on this topic is Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter J. Williams. Because really, if we can trust the Gospels, which says more about Jesus than any other book written, And Jesus says a lot about the rest of the reliability of the scriptures in terms of his take on Adam and Eve, Noah, Moses, Jonah. Then these things begin to work out themselves. 
And so I would point you in that direction. It's a it's a great book and um, one that's worth the time. So real briefly, let me give you a synopsis of the book. Essentially, uh, Peter is dealing with an accusation that's pretty common. Uh, a guy by the name of Bart Ehrman has has made the accusation. It's it's that the Bible, especially the Gospels, is like the telephone game. That as the message has got passed on and passed on and passed on, it's been corrupted. Just like when you play the telephone game and you whisper a secret, then by the time it gets to the end of the line, it's very different than where it begins. The problem is, is that the transmission of the Bible wasn't really anything like the game of telephone uh, because we weren't whispering it. It was written down. And so uh, Peter really challenges this notion. And he has a fantastic perspective. So one of the things he looks at is how you would tell if any book is historically reliable. And so this is kind of the manuscript test. And what the manuscript test is, there's, there's two keys. One, you have to look at the gap of time between the original autograph being written and the oldest manuscript or copy that you have. So as you can imagine, if the oldest copy we have has a really long period of time between uh, when it was written and when the autograph, the original copy was written, then it's a little less likely that we can trust the reliability of it. So if something has a thousand year separation time, well, that's a lot of time for it to change. But what's interesting about the New Testament is, is that it's a very short window of time. Uh, It's less than 150 years between the autographs and our oldest manuscripts. Uh, The other test in regard to the manuscript test is, is the number of manuscripts that you have. So if you have five manuscripts and you begin to compare them and they're all identical, then they're probably really close to what the original copy of the autograph said. However, if you have five copies and there's a lot of dissonance in between them, then it makes it a little bit more challenging to determine what the autograph actually said. Now, in terms of books from antiquity, old books, a lot of manuscripts would be like more than 300. A lot of manuscripts of books that nobody questions are in the double digits. It's less than 100 copies that we have with fairly large windows of time between the autograph being written and when we have the copy being written. Now, with the New Testament, however, we have not just hundreds, but thousands of manuscripts written in a really close time period. The New Testament has more copies, more manuscripts than any other book from antiquity, any any other old book that we consider historically reliable. And so when you look at something like the manuscript test, in terms of the time period between the writing of the original and the copies that we have, and then the number of copies, it's hands down. Gospels is the most reliable book in all of history. There's no other book that compares to it. And so if we're willing to take these tests and apply it to other books from antiquity, and to establish their historicity, then we ought to be willing to take those same tests and apply it to the Gospels, to the New Testament, and see that we should consider these historically reliable. Now, Dr. Williams covers all of that in his book, but he doesn't stop there. He continues on. 
He gives another example of, of the importance of details. And if you get details right, then you're probably getting the, the big information right. So one of the things he talks about is names. Now, you and I both know that we've all forgotten someone's name. I mean, we've met somebody for the first time, and within 10 seconds of them introducing themselves and saying their name, it's out of our head. Names are a very easy thing to forget. Now, what we notice in the Gospels is that they use a lot of names. Now, one of the things that is a common accusation of the writers of the Gospels is that they weren't writing in the first century and they weren't really people who had been around Jesus or been around his apostles in the case of Mark and Luke. So, it would go that it's somebody who was writing a hundred years more after Jesus, and writing outside of the land of Israel. Now, the question would be then, if they're writing about a time period that they didn't live in, about people who live in the country that they don't live in, how well would they get the names right? You know, So, for example, in America, the names that we use today are very different than the names that they used in England 150 years ago. And so, if you want to write a story for people to believe it about someone living in England in uh, the you know 1850s, you have to do a little bit of research to make sure that you get the names right. And Google can help with that. The problem is that in the second century AD, there was no Google. And so, you'd expect for people to probably not get the names list wrong or or... You know, maybe we just presume that names didn't change that much. But what's interesting is is that through archaeology and archaeological records, they've been able to identify the most common names in Israel in the first century, along with what were the most common names in neighboring countries. And because of Israel being so distinct in terms of their faith in Yahweh being Jewish, the names are distinct from the neighboring countries. And so, if the gospel writers were making this up, and they were living outside of the land, living 100 years later, we'd presume that they don't get the name right. However, the frequency of names that we find in the gospels and the frequency of names that we find in the archaeological records match up really, really well. And so, that lends more credibility that if the Bible can get a detail like a name right, then there's a lot of accuracy to this book. Now, the other thing that you'll notice is is that uh, some names show up multiple times. Uh, so, for example, uh, Peter, there's multiple Peters, uh, I'm sorry, not Peters, there's multiple Simons in the New Testament. So, there's Simon Peter, uh, there's Simon the Sorcerer, there's Simon the Tanner, and what you would expect is that if the name shows up multiple times in the New Testament, then in archaeological records, the name Simon would show up multiple times. And that's what happens with the name Simon. Furthermore, uh, common names need a way of distinguishing them, which is what we find in the New Testament. Simon Sarbon of Jonah is that whenever we see a Simon, there's a qualifier with it to distinguish the Simon from other Simons. So let me draw a parallel. When I was in college, there was two other Jareds who were in this group of Christians that we all hung out with together. Now, my name starts with a G. Their name starts with a traditional J. And so people would distinguish them by their last name, Moore and Thornburg. Now, me being 
uh, with a G, then I was not called by Hall, but I was instead called Jared with a G. And so that's how people would distinguish us. There was Moore, there was Thornburg, and there was Jared with a G. And that's how they would dis- distinguish between the three Jareds. And so in the same way, in the New Testament, with a multitude of Simons, you have qualifiers. Simon the Sorcerer, Simon the Tanner, Simon Barjona, Simon son of Jonah is what that means. And so that's what, that's what you have. And that makes a lot of sense if the authenticity of the gospel writers is true. Now, it goes on further. Um, places like cities and uh, botany, types of plants and trees, those are really hard details to get right if you're not from a place. So, for example, I had a tree in my backyard that I cut down recently, and I couldn't tell you what it is. I don't know what kind of tree it is. Now, also, if I think about um, a country that I've never been to, um, like the United Arab Emirates, I know that the city Dubai is there, but I couldn't tell you any other city there. Now, I imagine if I traveled there, I could tell you a few more cities. And so, with the gospel writers, in the new, in the, in, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I, we have like 24 different cities mentioned specifically, all of which have been found and supported uh, through archaeological records. That's a pretty astounding amount. It's pretty, it's pretty accurate. Now, if you take the Gospels found in the New Testament and you compare them to something like uh, Da Vinci Code's referencing of the Gnostic Gospels, so like the Gospel of Mary or the Gospel of Peter or the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, these these, go- these these supposed Gospels that were supposedly just as accurate as the Gospels we have or not more accurate that the Catholic Church, you know, put put aside to, to support their idea. That's what um, type of theology is being taught through the Da Vinci Code. Uh, well, in, in these so-called Gospels, you don't have hardly any city names. The only city names that you ever see show up in this is Jerusalem, which if there's one city name in all of Israel that everybody basically knows throughout all of time, it's the name Jerusalem. It's not Capernaum. It's not Bethel. It's not anything like that, right? However, the other name of a city that you do see is Nazareth, but it's never even used as an actual town that someone goes to. It's just in reference to uh, calling Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. And so that's interesting to me is that in our four Gospels, you have all of these different cities mentioned. You have the location of them uh, given kind of an idea. Uh, you have archaeology that's found them, and then these other supposed Gospels you have almost no cities outside of Jerusalem and Nazareth. Again, Nazareth not being a city reference, and none of nothing else. And that, to me, that sounds more like written by somebody who lived after the fact, who didn't live in the land, and who was making some stuff up, as opposed to somebody who lived in the land in that time period. Now, um, let's give an example. So, in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, you're familiar with the song that comes from there. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Wee little man was he. Uh, 
He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Now, when we go to the text, for it to specifically say a sycamore tree, and for it to specifically say in Jericho, that's a bold move. Not only are you giving the detail of the specific type of tree, but you're also giving the detail of the city. Jericho obviously identified, and what's interesting is that sycamore trees are in that region. You could go to Jericho today and see a sycamore tree. And it's not like sycamore trees are everywhere throughout the entire region. It's clustered to a smaller area, geographical area. And so you would have to know Jericho to to know that you could say with confidence that it's a sycamore tree. If you're just making up a story, why take the risk? Why not say Zacchaeus is climbing up in a tree to see the Lord in a town near Jerusalem? But instead, Luke gives the specific details, and the details are right. The details are spot on. And so, um, another example, uh, the Mount of Olives. What does you expect to have on the Mount of Olives? Olive trees. What do we find on the Mount of Olives? Olive trees. Old olive trees. And so, uh, I, I share all of this to help give you some confidence in the Gospels, to give you some confidence in the New Testament, to give you some confidence that even though we don't have the autographs, the original writings of the Gospels in the New Testament, the manuscripts that we have, and the vast number of them, and the age of them, and the details of them, all prove that we have a reliable copy of the Scriptures that reflect what God inspired and wrote, and it continues to prove to be the document that God has revealed himself through and continues to work through to transform us. And so if you have more questions on this, I encourage you to reach out or grab a copy of Peter Williams' Can We Trust the Gospels? Thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of Hall Talk. This has been our Bible Q&A week. As always, thank you so much for taking the time to listen, to subscribe, to download. And also, if this is helpful and encouraging, feel free to share. And also, if you have some comments or some feedback you'd like to share, constructive thoughts, I'd love to hear them. As always, I'd like to have a conversation and dialogue off air. And so please feel free to shoot that to me. My email is jared.hall at gmail.com. It's the easiest way to reach me. Well, until next time, I hope you have a great week, a blessed week, and I hope that you do amazing things for the Lord. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Hall Talk. Share your voice by leaving a comment or asking a question. Join the team by hitting like, subscribing, and sharing with others. As always, join us next time for more insights and conversations on Hall Talk.